Welcome to another episode of Rethinking Aloud, uh, where today we'll be thinking about the Bible, what it is, how to interpret it, and how to get the most out of it in our own everyday faith, in our personal reading of it, uh, and in our engagement with it. And for this episode, I'm joined by Steve Ransley, vicar of Houghton on the Hill in the Cornerstone team, Stephen March, a licensed pioneer working in the Avon Swift group of parishes, and Dawn O'Connell, who's a families worker with the Harborough Anglican team in Market Harborough. And they'll be joining me in thinking aloud about the good book. Now, Stephen, starting with you, this is an ancient anthology of 66 smaller books written over a period of one and a half thousand years by at least 40 different authors. And even its newest bits are almost a couple of thousand years old. Why does this even matter? Well, that's a good question. Um, perhaps I could, I could start to give an answer by telling you a story uh, when I was at Bible College, we had a particularly provocative lecturer who loved a bit of theatre called Dr. Stephen Dray. And in the first year, he would always do this lecture for the new students. And he would come into the lecture room with his Bible. He would read a Bible verse and then he would offer up a prayer, which is all very normal for Bible College lectures. And then he would ostentatiously take his Bible and throw it violently across the room into the waste paper bin. Well, you can imagine the reaction as people be shocked and stunned that the, the holy text that most of them have been studying for you know most of their lives had been treated in such a way by a Bible college lecturer. And while everybody was kind of just stunned and not knowing how to react, he would then say, okay, so we have no Bible. What can we know about God? And then he would lead us into an exploration of what can we know about God when we don't have the Bible. And there's some things that we can at least infer. We can infer perhaps from the size and the grandeur of the cosmos that God must be incredibly powerful and awesome. We can perhaps infer from the reality of, of order and not chaos. We can predict how the universe works, that that might tell us something about God. We experience beauty, that perhaps gives us something. Uh, and universally, human beings seem to have this internal moral compass that tells us when we're doing right and when we're doing wrong, our conscience. So perhaps we can infer something from that too. But for the, all the answers to the really big questions of life, why is there a universe and not nothing? How does God relate to what he has made? Does he? Is he interested? What does it mean for us as human beings to live well? Why is there pain and suffering in the world? What comes after death? What is life for? We can't answer any of these questions from the general revelation that we can infer from, from the universe. We can only answer those questions through the special revelation that Christians believe we find in the Bible. That's why the Bible is so important. Yeah, I think probably um, just chipping in there, I'd uh, uh, agree with everything Stephen has just said. Then I think it's a really helpful uh, story that he just told at the start, uh, in that it is uh, is chiefly the way that we can know know God through the person of Jesus. Um, you know, it's it's how we're diagnosed with our our, our condition, why we need a saviour. Um, I think as well, it, it the Bible is is just utterly unique 
Um, you know, and you're, you're sort of only in question, John, you talked about 66 smaller books written over a massive period of history by lots of different authors. Um, and, and that's, that's pretty unique, <laughs> uh, in terms of a bit of literature. Um, and particularly when, if you think about the span of history from when it was written, how little it contradicts itself in terms of it being one big story, um, and, and so I think in that sense, it, it matters because the Bible itself, what's contained within is an incredibly special um, book. Just um, wonder if at this point it's worth saying anything about how Scripture came to us in this form. Um, you know, who, who decided what was in it? Well, if I could respond to that, John, it was certainly a long process. I mean, the Bible probably begins with the Ten Commandments, which, if you remember, were given by God to Moses. Um, And the Bible describes them as being written by the finger of God. Moses came down after having spent 40 days with God at this, really the creation of the Jewish nation, and he comes down with these stone tablets that have on them the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. Uh, which was basically going to be the fundamental document that would shape the life of the Jewish nation. Um, So that's where the Bible really starts. And then retrospectively, the the five books of the Pentateuch, the books traditionally ascribed to Moses at the start of the Old Testament, they're kind of like a whole theological and legal framework for the life of the nation. And the rest of the Old Testament, it records the life of the Jewish nation as that life unfolds. And it's a a very human story of heroes and villains, of highs and lows, of blessing and cursing. And the books of the Old Testament are the ones that the Jewish people held and revered as being God's truth about their story. And they're remarkably honest. I mean, even their great heroes and heroines are are described in all of their flaws and failings. It's a very stark uh, picture. And indeed, the whole difficulty of of living with God as a people, as a nation, that's that's presented very starkly as as a complex and a difficult and a challenging relationship. And the story of that nation as it unfolds, it's told through poems and songs, historical documents, legal codes, through stories, through messages delivered by prophets, who are people who spoke God's truth into the life of that nation. And it kind of, to understand it well, you need to understand that the origin story, the very start of the Bible, Adam and Eve and all of that, um, we're told that human beings are in a difficult relationship with, with God because we have rebelled against God, we've turned our back on him. And because of that, that has damaged the relationship between ourselves and it's damaged the relationship between us and the created world. So we live in this kind of existence of of three damaged relationships between God, between each other and between the world. And all the way through this Old Testament script, this Old Testament scriptures, we see hints and signs and promises that God is not going to leave that situation as it is. He is going to do something to repair these three broken relationships. And that promise eventually comes to be conceived as a Messiah, a person sent from God who would come and restore that which had been broken. But around 400 BC, the, the line of the prophets, people speaking God's word into the life of nation, it just stops. 
no one after that point is is recognized by the Jewish people as having delivered a message for them from God. And there's this great silence. And then around 4 BC, Jesus was born. And some people came to believe that he was this Messiah, this promised person who would restore everything. And the New Testament scriptures are the story of Jesus's life, his teaching, uh, and the, the community of people who tried to follow his teachings, the Christians. And all the books that were included in the New Testament were included either because they were written by Jesus's first followers, people who had direct first-hand experience of him, or by their close companions, or because the church globally recognized that in these books they heard the voice of God. And all the books were written before 120 AD, so that's 70 to 90 years from Jesus' death, while the eyewitnesses were still around to confirm the truth of them. And they were copied and passed around Christian communities endlessly. Um, And eventually there was a a recognised canon of 27 books that uh, comprise what we now know as the New Testament. So what we know is the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew scriptures, they were already accepted as scripture by the time that Jesus pitched up. Uh, and then the New Testament books, uh, are you saying that a lot of them were kind of recognised for what they were, even as they were being written almost? Because doesn't um, Peter um, describe some of Paul's writings as complicated uh, and refers to them as scripture? Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, Anything anyone wants to say about any of the ecumenical councils, I suppose particularly Carthage in 397 AD or anything, or how key they were, or perhaps even weren't that much in deciding what was in or what was out? Yeah, I think I think they were key. Um, I think what's, what's probably important, I guess, in this, this question is, and, you know, I've heard it before, um, you know, isn't the New Testament just a bunch of books that's been arbitrarily decided by a bunch of blokes in a closed room? Um, you know, isn't that who've who've just sought power? That kind of that kind of thing, um, and therefore, why should we accept it? But as, as Stephen's kind of really helpfully just um, outlined, you know, up to that process, um, and and as you mentioned, John, as well, even from the sort of the, the moment they're spoken and written, there's general kind of acceptance of what they are and the authority that they carry. Um, and so it's not that they've sort of sat in a room and, and got all these compilations and letters and gone right in, out, out, in, in, out. It's It was a gradual process of acknowledging it. And, you know, you see that right in the first century of just sort of early church leaders of, of, of how they speak about Scripture. It is written and then referring back um, to something else. So really all those councils did was, was sort of formalize, if you like, what was already pretty much widely accepted across the early Christian world. Mm-hmm. So it matters. I mean, we started I think, saying, why does it, why does it matter, this ancient um, compilation of, of writings? Uh, it matters, uh, I think, from what Stephen was saying, because it's the primary written source book for our understanding of our faith, our world, our salvation, ourselves, God, how we relate to God, all that stuff. Um, people sometimes talk about the authority of Scripture. Um, is what they really mean the authority of God mediated through Scripture? Yeah, good, good question. I think when we're starting to talk about authority of Scripture, um, I feel that can get slightly misunderstood. Um, it's not that we're saying we worship this book 
Um, you know, uh, it's not a holy book in the sense in and of itself. Um, you know, I think rather what it is, is God's voice speaking through people. So um, we don't worship the book. We worship the God who um, the Bible points us to, like we just mentioned a while ago. It's, it's about revelation of God and who he is and who we are. And so it's what points us to. Um, so I think that's an important thing to say, um, uh, first of all. But it's, its authority comes from the fact that, that it is a divine book, um, that, that it is words spoken by God. I think we'll probably talk about in a minute about inspiration. Um, but if, you know, you, you, and, and Jesus says, says this uh, in Matthew 19, he's, he's, uh, he's been asked by the Pharisees about uh, a divorce, a question about divorce. And, and he replies, uh, they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Uh, and Jesus says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So, so Jesus is going back to Genesis. But what's interesting is that uh, where he says, and said, God said, uh, if you read the original Genesis account, that's, uh, that's the, the author of Genesis writing that, that Moses. Um, so Jesus clearly ascribes to Scripture that it is spoken by God, that it is God's words. We, you read in 2 Timothy that it's God-breathed. Um, so because of its nature, it carries an authority. Um, I suppose you could liken it to, um, and illustrations always fall down at some point, and I'm sure this, this one will do, but you, know, you imagine somebody reading out a royal decree from the Queen. Um, they are her words and they're her intentions and her communications, but it's being read out through somebody else. And it carries that authority. Why? Because it's come from from the Queen, um, and and because of that, because uh, it is a divine book, because it's authored by God, um, that means that it should have authority over us. And that means that it 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 corrects my thinking. And so when I read something in the Bible, it's talking about God correcting maybe how I'm thinking, feeling um, things that I'm desiring that I shouldn't, whatever whatever it may be. And, and that verse that I quoted from 2 Timothy uh, says, all scriptures God breathed. He continues and writes and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So it's, it's God breathed, it's God authority. And because of that, it therefore has the authority for us to, to sit under. And actually, if you look at, you know, even the sort of the Anglican church and the, the liturgy of that, and, um, you know, some churches still do this, but, you know, when the gospels are read, um, you know the, the 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 Bible is held above the head as they walk down the aisle to read it, um, and and that's a symbolism of the fact that we sit under the authority of God's word. I really like that um, analogy actually about the, the Queen, you know, some royal decree of the Queen's being read out. Because I think the other way in which that works actually successfully as an analogy is that the accent and the intonation and the expression that the reader, the person, kind of reading the Queen's message allowed gave to it would slightly alter the way that it was heard perhaps um, mm. and in scripture you get god speaking um, that that thing about you know all scripture is god breathed or god breathed out the amustos uh, it's the is the words of god but it's written by very human authors in their own style and so you can you know perhaps look at mark's gospel and you say well that's written in a very sort of simple basic quick way 
John's gospel is highly stylized. You know, Paul's got this wonderfully logical way of arguing with ridiculously lengthy sentences. Yeah, so you get the the, the personality of the biblical author. It's not that God is dictating in some mechanistic mm. way, um, but it is still the words of God. You know, coming through that. I think there's a there's a nice phrase that kind of sums up the authority of Scripture when we talk about Christians living in a house of paper. The idea is that because this is the word of God, everything we believe, think, say or do should be shaped by scripture. For me, that that helps us see how significant, and I love that illustration from Steve about the reader walking down, holding the Bible above above their head as they walk down the aisle to read it in the center of the congregation. It's a really lovely symbolism of this is the central text for us and it has authority over us. So touched on there the, the idea of God speaking. Uh, God speaks to us through the Bible that as we read it, we hear his voice in some sense. Um, Dawn, how, in what sense do you think that God speaks to us through the Bible or, or how are some of the ways that we experience that? When I think of how God speaks to us through the Bible, I can't help but think of Jesus, the living word. And uh, it, it's a term that John uses to describe Jesus, the word, the living word of God. And in Jesus, we see the Bible being lived. Um, and that speaks volumes. The life of Jesus interprets the Bible into a living being. And to see what living God's way looks really, really like, the way we treat each other, what it means to put others first, to love, what it means to love God, how to live sacrificially, what salvation looks like, and our relationship with God. It's, it's, Jesus speaks about all those things that we can find in the Bible. And I just love that sense that Jesus is the living word because it speaks of scripture that's alive. It's, it's scripture that shapes lives. It's written to be made alive. Um, and I was thinking, you know, firstly, that's through Jesus and how we see the way Jesus lives, and also through ourselves, you know, the way scripture shapes, shapes us. And when we read the Bible, it, it's got to make a difference. How can it not make a difference if it's living? So going back to that question, you know, God does speak through the Bible. Through the Bible, God sheds light onto situations, our personal situations, those for the nation, for the world. The history books show us that there's nothing new under the sun. He encourages us and he builds us up. He reminds us of his promises. He reveals sin and unforgiveness. He reveals pain and disappointment. And most of all, uh, the scripture reveals himself. It reveals who God is to us. I love the way, you know, God knows our desires and needs before we even know them. But the Bible can help us understand what they are. And I, I think personally, and um, one of the most important things is how the Bible helps us to connect our own story with the story of God and how it grows in us. It gives us that sense of belonging. And we are connected to the prophets, to the patriarchs, those people whose lives have been recorded, to the, the whole human struggle and that human search for God. But yeah, God speaks through the Bible. Uh, such a privilege to be able to read it freely. Mm -hmm. I've got an interesting story that kind of demonstrates the power of the word of God just on its own to, to impact people. 
when I was growing up, one of my friends from school, his dad was a lorry driver. So, you know, you're ordinary everyday bloke. And uh, he didn't really come to church very often. He wasn't that interested in, in sort of religion or God. And one night, about half past ten, he just suddenly had a, a notion to, to read the Bible. So he went onto the sort of the bookshelf in the living room and he pulled down the Bible and he just opened it at random and he started reading. And within half an hour, he was on his knees praying, asking Jesus to come and to help him to be the person that God wanted him to be. <laughs> Nobody else was involved, just one man coming to the Bible on his own without any knowledge or understanding really, but the Holy Spirit used that to, to transform his life. And I think that those kind of stories, we hear them quite a lot in church. And I think we need to really understand that the Bible, it speaks for itself often because God's spirit inhabits his word and it's powerful and living and active. I'm sure every Christian has had the experience of reading a passage in the Bible. And I suppose maybe a little bit like you guys were saying, but reading a passage in the Bible, perhaps an unfamiliar or slightly obscure passage, getting to the end of it and thinking, blimey, what was all that about? <laughs> yeah. Have you got any tips on how to read the Bible? Like almost what questions do we need to ask for a passage to help us understand it or to help us hear what God is speaking to us through it? Well, I think that, that I could probably respond to this. I mean, the first thing that I would say is that we have to understand context before we can understand text. And um, we as Christians believe that the Bible is God's word. And as such, that's eternal wisdom. But God spoke that eternal wisdom to a particular people in a particular place and at a particular time. To use a theological term, it's enculturated, it's expressed within a culture. And our 21st century culture is very, very different from the nomadic Middle Eastern culture in which the Bible was first spoken. So some of the things the Bible says, they might not make any sense to us, or we might actually misunderstand them, um, or we might think they mean something completely different from what the original people understood by them. So if we are going to understand God's truth revealed in the Bible, we're going to have to work out what the first hearers understood by that. And then we're going to have to work out what that meant to them in their culture. And once we've done that, then we can identify the transcultural principle behind that. And we can apply that principle in our own culture. Um, it's called using the ladder of abstraction theologically. So, for example, there's a verse in Deuteronomy 25, which says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Well, at first glance, that has nothing to say to us in 21st century Britain, because we don't use oxen to tread grain to separate the grain from the stalks. We have combine harvesters that do that. Um, but the underlying principle is that if you're going to make animals work for you, you should share with them the fruit of their labors. It's about being generous and not oppressive in how you use animals. It's about kindness. So do we have working animals today in Britain? Yes, we do. So we should treat those animals with kindness and with compassion. And there's even a broader principle about fairness in distributing the fruit of work that is done. So, you know, when we work together corporately in businesses, are the workers at the bottom 
rewarded as much as the managers at the top? Is there an equitable distribution of the fruit of the labor? So you can see that that text, though it was an ancient text, it still has something very relevant and real to say today. And the second thing I would say is that I believe the Bible is progressive revelation. What's being revealed moment by moment over the two and a half thousand years of the Bible's um, creation is not God's ultimate will at that moment in time, but it's a step towards God's ultimate will for how human beings live and work and worship. I've said we saw at the start of the Bible, human beings living in harmony with God, with each other, and with the world in which they were placed. And at the end of the Bible, we see that recreated people, human beings living in harmony with each other, with God, and with the world. And between those two ends, we're seeing a progressive work shaping human living in a positive way towards that final goal. So, for example, in the Old Testament, there's laws about how slaves should be treated. Well, does that mean that God approves of slavery? Well, there's no slavery at the start and there's no slavery at the end. So we can assume that slavery is not part of God's will for human beings. So if we look at those slavery laws, what do we see there? Well, we see a more humane treatment of slaves than in any of the surrounding cultures at the time. Their slaves had rights. Slavery was time limited. Um, and it was kind of like a social safety net where those in desperate straits could do something to, to stop themselves starving to death. And after seven years, they'd be freed and they'd have a stake to begin again. So slavery was part of the ancient world. A third of the population were slaves in some of the cultures. Um, so the God's revelation in that context is to say this is not God's ultimate will, but it's to mitigate the worst effects. And it's a step towards what God wants. And it's showing the inherent value of the human person. And so perhaps we need to see the Bible as the best achievable at any particular moment in time. Brilliant. Yes, Stephen, that's, that's really helpful. I I think as well there's, there's I suppose, several questions you can ask. I would say that, um, you know, uh, even as a vicar, um, having been to Bible college, I'll read bits of the Bible and think, what was all that about? <laughs> uh, so this is not, this is a, this is a common experience uh, among Christians. Um, but I do think there are some sort of helpful questions and ways that you can attack, just building on what Stephen said. Um, so it's always good to look at, uh, what the author's intention is in writing, which he, we kind of looked at, um, you know, at the beginning of, of Luke's gospel, um, he tells us why he's writing. Um, he said, you know, it seems good to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the certainty of things you've been taught. So we've been told right at the beginning of Luke's gospel why he's doing it. He's doing it because he wants his buddy Theophilus to, to be certain about everything about Jesus. And and often in in a lot of scripture, you you can figure out the author's intention, his purpose in writing. A lot of that is like in in the letters that Paul writes. Um, another really important, easy thing you can do is just looking at the context of it. So, you know, just like um, Stephen used the Deuteronomy example, it would be getting that verse, seeing where it sits within the chapter, seeing where the chapter fits within um, a chunk of the chapter. Um, how the chapter fits in with the uh, with maybe the genre of writing, then with the you kind of it's almost like a target, and you get outwards, um, gradually getting to the kind of the God's big picture as to how it fits in with with that, and that can be quite helpful 
tools you just ask, which starts to you know help you see things in the passage maybe you didn't um, before. Um, I think it's really important as well to to have a handle on on looking at what kind of writing it is. So the genre. Um, so I mean that back to that first thing we talked about, sixty six books. It's not just different authors; it's different genres. Um, there's all kinds of different writing in there. You know, narrative, poetry, uh, witness accounts, letters, all different kinds of writing. And so when you when you look at a passage, it's important to know what that genre is because if you're asking a passage um, of a certain genre, a certain question, it might not be meant to answer that. Um, and and so just figuring out what the kind of the, the 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 genre of it is. So if you look at Psalms, and you know we're going through Ecclesiastes at the moment at Houghton, it's quite poetic in its um, in the language that he uses. And so just knowing that can be quite a helpful thing um, uh, to do. So that that'd be some of the questions that I'd I think start to to ask. And then once you've got the the bigger ones, you can start. I often find you know when I like prep a sermon, I'll print off the passage and you know, just go at it with a pen and look out for kind of repeated words, thinking, oh, that's quite key. That word's popped up quite a lot of times in uh, not, a, you know, in a short space of time. You look at words that connect with one another, so for, therefore, so that, all those kind of things. And that, just asking little questions of texts um, can start to just reveal things you might not have, have seen on a, on a first reading. But it does, it's hard work. <laughs> it's not easy. <laughs> so um, just stick with it. <laughs> Right. Dawn, any other thoughts? Just been saying, it's reminded me of um, a long time ago, I read the Ezekiel's Valley of Dry Bones. And at the time, I felt as though I should try the Old Testament. And I'd been looking for God and wanting more. And I thought, maybe it's in the Old Testament, I'll find him. But I've been avoiding it because it was just like lots of wars and bloodshed. And it didn't seem to be the sort of God I wanted to know, really. Well, I opened my Bible at random. I wouldn't recommend that as a way of listening to God, but I did. And there was Ezekiel's Valley of Dry Bones, and I read it, and I reread it. And I said, well, that's why I don't read the Old Testament, because it just didn't make sense. But that night I went to church, and someone preached on the Valley of Dry Bones. And I felt as though that night I was really filled with the Holy Spirit, and it was him who showed me um, and revealed the Bible to me and the Bible truths in so many different ways I could never imagine. Well, that was over 25 years ago, and he still reveals the scriptures to me. And I, he does to people all over the world. So we should have faith that the Holy Spirit is with us, and he will reveal God's truths to us through the Bible. And I just see it as uh, part of his job description, if you like. That's what he does. So, so something about the importance, I suppose, of praying for the Holy Spirit to guide us before we read it. Yeah, it might not be a bad thing to be doing. Um, I mean, and, and it's, uh, sometimes it's those obvious things, like you know, just pray before you read it. Ask God to show you, you know, that we forget to do. Um, I don't know if you have any more sort of practical tips for getting the best out of personal Bible reading, Dawn. Yeah, I think the Bible is not really the sort of book where you start at Genesis and work through to Revelation. I think for some people it can work, but for many of us, that's not the way to do it. Um, I think the most important thing is probably working out what works for you. You know, each of us, we're all unique, we're all different. We've all got our different ways of um, reading the Bible. 
God speaks to us and we should expect it. You know, we should read the Bible expecting God to hear from God. And if sitting down for 10 minutes a day to read a chapter works for you, then do that. But we aren't all readers in the same way. And I wonder for some of us if the, the tortoise approach is just as good as the hare, where we read a little bit every day. It can work just as well. And sometimes reading that little bit a day and just focusing on it and dwelling in that verse or that passage, we can glean so much more from it than reading the whole chapter sometimes. Mm. I think there's a, some amazing apps around now that we can have on our phones um, that can really support us as we read the Bible. They, for some of us, receiving a reminder every day is just what we need. We can record notes on that. And some of us um, can even have it read out to us if you've got the, uh, the right phone. Um, great way to fall asleep, I find. Yes, I, I've been using the Version Bible app and uh, David Suchet will read you the Bible. When I've been really <laughs> enjoying his mellifluous tones and, and wonderful kind of expressive reading of the Bible. And, and for me, it, it's actually made it come alive in a way that just reading it off the page hasn't. It's been really interesting to see the difference in hearing the Bible read rather than just reading it yourself. Yeah, definitely. I think um, daily readings for some people work well. And I, th I know my daughter, she has a tick list and she ticks off a chapter each time she's completed it and it works great for her. But for me, I just end up feeling guilty because of the days I've missed. And then I try catching up and then, well, it just doesn't end well. So it works for some and maybe not others. But maybe one of the really important things is um, to remember, to find ways that you can remember what God's been saying to you. And finding a way of keeping a journal or writing in the margins of your Bible, maybe, or just finding um, scribbles on notes, anything at all. But it can be great, you know, if you're uh, just looking back, reading some of the things God has said to you and just remembering. And as we grow in our faith and remembering what God has said to us in the past, it can just be so encouraging, you know, sometimes just when we need it. But this, during lockdown, I've had uh, a great time with my grandson. He's been um, reading Diary of a Disciple to me uh, as his bedtime reading. <clears throat> and wow, to hear the scriptures read by a child is awesome. Um, because they've just got that sort of open question in mind. And he's got no problem saying if he disagrees. When he read the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, um, he was really angry because he could. He thought, well, where's the fairness in all that? And he just said, I can't do it. But it did leave me thinking about um, the Sermon on the Mount in a new way. And it did sort of make me think, why am I not angry about it as well? You know, like he is, you know, he's just eight. And yeah, that's how he felt. It was uh, really revealing hearing him read it. So really, it's not about knowing yourself knowing what works for you and uh, uh, and then going with that. So whether it's reading notes, whether it's an app on your phone, whether it's reading a lot, reading not a lot, find out what works for you and then make it work for you. So, yeah. I mean, you, you sometimes hear people talking, don't you, about the Bible being inspired. It was certainly inspirational. It's inspired lots of people over lots of centuries. 
Um, but when people talk about the inspiration of scripture, uh, they mean more than that, don't they? Um, what do they mean? Yeah, well, I've, I've um, already mentioned this this uh, verse from 2 Timothy, but I think this is the the key text really on 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 that idea of inspiration. Um, that when you say the Bible's inspired, it's not like you've just said inspired in the you know the sports movies as an inspired game or uh, an inspirational speaker who kind of rallies people up. Um, it's more that the Bible. Um, is inspired by God. So um, that that verse again from 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. Um, you know, if you think when you, uh, when you breathe and speak, you can't speak um, without breathing. Now, if you close your mouth and then you try and speak, it's just not going to happen. And so, you know, words, they, they travel on our breath. And that picture from 2 Timothy is is like that with God in that they've, they've kind of traveled out of his mouth. Um, it's his word. And then we mentioned this earlier as well. And this is the, the beauty of scripture, I think, is that we've got that divine sense of inspiration. Um, but it's the dual authorship in that, that, that it's, it's men who've, who've been carried along by the Holy Spirit inspired, not in a kind of robotic sitting down suddenly, you know, kind of zapped and then just writing uh, vociferously on the, on the page and getting out. Um, it's that God, by His Spirit, has inspired these writers um, to write what He wants us to hear, but also in their particular style. I mean, it's why in you know in in some letters you get little bizarre instructions. You know, give someone their cloak. Um, it's got that nice human aspect to it as well as it being divine. So. In terms of inspiration, that's what we mean. We mean it's inspired by God. It's God breathed out. And again, that plays into that authority issue of, of why it is that we, we submit to Scripture because it's inspired by God. Yes, and I think there's there's that other verse, isn't there, from 2 Peter chapter 1 where it says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And I think one of the things that you see as you study scriptures, as Steve has already kind of told us, as you look detail in detail at scripture and passages, you see lots of examples of human artistry in there. I mean, for, for example, the, the book of Jonah, which is one of my pet favorites, um, it's constructed around 14 questions. And it's got poetry that has inverted parallelism in it, where the poetry is kind of folded around a central line that's the most significant line. These are Semitic, uh, literal forms. And so the Bible was really a constructed text. You know, Kenneth Bailey's really good at, at bringing out some of the, the construction of the parables of Jesus that really helps us enter into the sort of the deep meaning of these parables. They weren't just kind of made up on the hoof, as, as Steve said. They were they were very carefully polished over a long period of time, and they are they are beautiful works of literature as well as being God's uh, of, of human artistry in literature as well as being God's revealed words to us. You, you can easily forget just how kind of beautiful Scripture is. I mean, we we went through Ruth recently in church and. And it's not until you kind of delve deeply into it that you you see just how this thing has been crafted with like wordplay and 
and and all that kind of stuff and and you know back to that question of you know practical tips for getting the best out of it not everyone's got the time for this all all the time but there's a really um, helpful resource online called step bible um, which i think has been done by people from tyndale house and it's it's a you can basically access uh every part of the bible but you are you're given it in the original languages and you can hover over words and see what they mean and and it just gives you a sense of 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 the richness of what's behind it a lot of the time and and just how these 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 certain books of the bible have been crafted is is amazing and i and i take inspiration as well that um clearly books of the bible have been edited in terms of you have an editor who's kind of pieced it together um you, you see that after moses death because obviously he can't speak after he's died so who's done that and and i think there's there's inspiration in that as well as to how that's been sort of seen together to produce this uh, amazing um, life-changing book yeah now I've, I've heard people say and you probably have done as well um, over the years people saying you can make the bible say anything you want it to say um, are they right and, and kind of following on from that bit are questions like what does this passage mean to you helpful or do they actually unhelpfully relativize meaning I think that's a key a key problem, and that's probably the the reason that for the many uh, many centuries the Roman Catholic Church discouraged lay people from reading and studying the Bible on their own. They preferred to have trained clergy to read and interpret Scripture because that was felt to be safer. These people knew how Scripture was created; they knew how to read genre, they knew how to hold Scripture against Scripture. Um, and lay people don't have those skills. But with the Reformation, suddenly ordinary people have access to the Bible and not in Latin or, or, or Hebrew or Greek, the original languages, but they have access to it in English, their own language, which is democratizing faith. Um, people could read for the Bible for themselves, decide what it meant, apply that into their lives. And that's obviously a good thing in giving people access to the scriptures. But it's not without its downside. Um, if you are unsophisticated in your reading of the biblical texts and if you have no knowledge of the cultural background of the Bible, then you can get yourself bang in trouble. And that's why it's really important to use those tools, like Steve was talking about, the online uh, tools. Bible commentaries have been, have been made for, for 2,000 years, people explaining the Bible uh, to other people. And I think it's really important uh, that people are trained in how to read the Bible well and safely. And the, the best Bible study, I think, happens in community, whereas we can each bring our own questions to the text, our own knowledge and understanding. And I think also it's that the Christian community over the 2000 years of Christian history, you know, we're not reading these texts in isolation. Christians have read them before us. And some of the greatest minds ever have, have struggled to understand these texts and come up with certain uh, ideas. And so we can hold our own, you know, this is what I think it means. But has anybody else ever thought that? And, and we can sort of see if we've gone wrong or whether we were in the stream of Christian understanding. So I think there's, there's, it's fantastic that, that the Bible is now democratized. But we have to understand that, that there, are, there are ways in which we have to keep ourselves safe in our use of Scripture and keep it ever fresh and challenging, but in a life-giving way. Mm. That's a really good um, check there, Stephen, isn't it, that we have on ourselves as we, as we read. I guess behind as well that, that question, um, 
going more deeper, it's it's just that idea, isn't it, of of can words and texts have any meaning, period, or is it just a matter of of opinion? Um, and you know that very much reflects the idea of sort of postmodernism, which we're kind of partly in at the moment. Um, there's a there's a great book that I I really enjoy called Why Trust the Bible by a lady called Amy Ewing. And in it, she describes uh, addressing this point of um, kind of relativism uh, of scripture. She she tells a story of of when her and her husband were at a, uh, at a wedding, and uh, her husband was chatting to this girl on the table, and the uh, the uh, the girl, she, I think she was an English literature student, and um, she basically believed that that words have no meaning; um, the meaning is attached by the by the reader or the hearer. Um, and that's what she that's what she believed. And uh, and uh, Amy Wang's husband pushed back on that and said, OK, well, if, if that's the case, then if words have got no meaning, except what the listener or the hearer understand, is it OK? This woman wasn't a Christian, by the way. Is it OK um, with you if I take what you've just said to mean uh, I believe in Jesus and I'm a Christian? Uh, at which point her sort of logical argument fell down a little bit. Um, so it's it's important to say that words, they have meaning, um, and that's okay, and that's a good thing, um, and and we need that when we 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 read the Bible, and um, there is, I mean, that's that's the beauty of Scripture, isn't it? That that a passage can it has universal truth that's right, but equally, like Dawn's kind of been saying, it, um, God can speak to us in a very particular way out of that, in a way that He might not to somebody else. Um, but it's really important as we're doing that to think, oh, hang on, is this, is this maybe uh, a bit down the leg side to coin a cricket phrase um, or not? Do I need to check this against other things and that kind of stuff? So, um, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's what I'd add to, to what Stephen said on that one. So there's a sense in which biblical text sometimes works on several levels at the same time. Um, there's some of the things we've thought about earlier, there's the original author's intent. Uh, there's where it fits into the whole Bible narrative. Um, Holy Spirit prompting us with personal stuff, kind of um, like ripples spreading out in a stone thrown into a pond. There's a kind of a big splash main meaning, and then there may be a number of ripples of secondary meanings. Mm. Um, Stephen's kind of taken us into um, that thing where we've we've mostly up until now been concentrated on reading the Bible on your own. Uh, that's kind of um, formed most of this conversation. Um, but Stephen's taken us into that. That, that thing about the importance of reading it in community. Um, I guess I'm thinking home groups, small group Bible study, at home with our own um, kids or families, church on Sunday. Um, Dawn, do you want to say something about the importance of of reading scripture in community and with others? Well, what greater way to discover what God is saying than to find ways to do it with others. Um, we have a, an all-age service in our team. Um, where everybody who attends is invited to explore the Bible in different ways, depending on on their learning style, on their spiritual style. They can, people can be creative. They can read, chat with others, listen to podcasts. Some people just like to sit quiet. But what that does is it enables us all to explore what the question for the day in the Bible reading. And God speaks. But when we come together, in that service afterwards and share what we think God has been saying to us as a community. It's like the teaching is coming from the community. And I just love it. I love that sense. 
that it's the community that God is speaking through. And he's speaking through each one of us. doesn't matter how old we are, how young we are, how long we've been going to church, whether or not we've just walked in that day. Each of us have got a contribution to make. And there's a real art of listening being grown in that service where we hear from each other and we hear what God is saying. But one of the amazing things that I find is that amongst all that is shared, it's often that voice of the child who says something completely different that can reshape our thinking and um, we leave there with a whole new understanding and perspective. So there's something, I believe, really powerful about learning in community where we are listening to each other, where we're having a confidence, a growing confidence to speak up for ourselves and where everything is valued that's said. Um, So, yeah. That's great. It's church on Sunday at St. Dye's when we're not on lockdown. <laughs> Shameless plug. I, I, I love that phrase about, um, I think it's just about almost like the, that we're learning the art of listening well or something like that, which is, which is great. And we, would, we had a podcast um, a week or two ago when we were thinking about uh, communion, thinking about the Eucharist and wondering if sometimes uh, we have a tendency to over-individualise it uh, and forget the community aspect. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, if you think about the New Testament, all of those epistles and letters which we you know, rightly to an extent read in a very personal sense as we you know, sit and do our own personal Bible reading, but actually they were all written to communities and initially read in community. Um, I don't know if, the two, if Steve or Stephen's got anything they want to add about the importance of, of studying Scripture corporately with other believers. I think I would... I would want to kind of emphasize that that point as we, we read it with with you know two thousand years of, of history of people from our tradition who've also been reading it so so you know bringing their insights to bear is really helpful I think also what we're learning particularly over the past few decades is how each culture reads the Bible differently uh, and there's a lot of work being done now theologically to look at what, what an Asian perspective or Africans' perspectives on scripture can teach us that we have missed in the West because perhaps because our culture is more distant from the Middle Eastern culture than, than theirs is, but also because as, as a culture, they bring certain questions to the Bible and they're sensitive to certain nuances in a way that we aren't. Um, and I think that's, that's a really enriching thing that's happening across the world church at this moment in time. Yeah, I, th- I think it's 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 super important for it to be to be read in community. Obviously, on a weekly basis, that happens in in a Sunday service, and it's read and and preached from. But but as a as a vicar, you often find when you're preaching, there's not the chance for the the digging deeper and the kind of the so what. You can you can do application, but it's it's not done in conversation. I mean, we we sometimes try and have questions and that kind of thing, but often that can be quite a hard environment to do it, which then makes your your small groups during the week really important. Um, so what we do at, at Houghton is is will our small groups will follow the sermon series. So you know I'll preach on Sunday on whatever it is, and then during that week um, they'll look at exactly the same passage in in the home group. And the idea will be really to to do the application of it rather than uh, in a sense wrestle with the theology, which which you want them to do as well. It's more that okay, that what's what's the so what for us. 
uh, in this. And that's the, that's the beauty of doing it um, with other people. Um, and, you know, at Houghton as well, we've just got, we've got different just arenas where it happens. So I've got a men's group that meets every week and we're reading through the same, same book of the Bible. Um, and it's amazing, you know, with a, sorry, my, my kids are going in and out of the house. Um, uh, it's amazing when, you know, a bunch of blokes get together, how that will differ uh, in terms of what they take from a passage and the emphasis we put on certain questions and how it challenges us. Um, and then, you know, the question as well, kids and families, it's, it's really important as well that um, churches are equipping families to, to be reading the Bible with their kids so that it, I think that it becomes normal for them. And so that when they grow up, they're like, Oh, it's normal. that I read the Bible. Um, and, and like Dawn alluded to with her, with her, her grandson, you know, having a chat and questions and um, allowing discussion, all that kind of stuff. You, you really grow as families when you do that. Um, so, I th- yeah, I think it's, it's, it's really important to be doing it uh, in community as well. I heard an interesting story this week from a friend of mine who's a vicar and uh, he was doing morning prayer um, every day uh, in the church. And of course, since the coronavirus, he's been able not been able to do that. So he's been starting doing it over Zoom. And he says it's now taking about three times as long because we read the Bible passage for the day. And then people say, but what's that mean? Oh, oh I don't understand that. Oh, that's interesting. And, and suddenly it's becoming a corporate reading of Scripture when before it was very much the, the, the vicar kind of read it out and, and it just hung there and there wasn't people didn't feel that they could kind of interrupt or ask questions. And I think that's a really interesting, he said it's, it's much richer now, the experience, because the community is coming to Scripture together. And that's really important from an accountability point of view because it's the togetherness that stops you from almost becoming a cult <laughs> because if you just have a leader who's teaching in one scenario, one area, um, and there's no opportunity for people to question stuff or say, Oh, I really struggle with that. What does that mean? Or I'm not sure I believe that or whatever, then that's not what we're about. Is it? We're about encouraging that kind of thing. And, and that's having the smaller groups. That's where it, um, all those kind of chats and conversations can happen. And, and Dawn, do you want to say something about uh, reading the Bible in a family context? Just that sense of, you know, how as families we grow together, but we learn from each other. And um, Rachel Turner does some great stuff on um, parenting in the home. And she talks about how children catch things from us as parents and how they catch things from their grandparents and the people they live with. And just that whole idea of how what we take from the Bible, we can share that with our kids and they can catch it from us, um, which makes which can make learning scripture very exciting, I think, for children when they see it alive in their parents' lives. So that's true. I, I think of um, you know, thinking about the Old Testament and the, the, the Jewish people and the way in which... Uh, in the Passover, you know, in the, the celebration of it at certain points, you know, the children would ask a question and the answer would be rehearsed to them and things and how, how the kids were in, integral to that. And uh, I think there's a lot that we can we can learn from that in terms of faith in the home and um, you know, just having the Bible at the centre of our ordinary, everyday conversations and God talk with the kids and stuff. That's, that's really good. Um, well, look, this has been great fun. We're almost at the end of our time together, so thank you to all three of you. Um, but just to finish, kind of um, Desert Island Discs type of question. If you could read 
only one book of the Bible for the rest of your life, what would it be? Who's going to go first? I'll go first if you want. Um, in some ways, it's a bit like asking me if I could only eat one item of food for the rest of my life, what would I eat? And, you know, whatever I chose, you know, I think probably after a while it would, it would become a bit monotonous. Um, although the Bible's not quite like that, because I did spend 12 years studying the book of Jonah, which is a book that's only got 700 words in the Hebrew. <laughs> and I never got bored with it. And I was always finding there was new depths of meaning and richness in it. Uh, and I guess that's why we call it the living word. It's the, the Holy Spirit of God who makes the Bible live to us uh, every time we come to it. So uh, I think it, it probably doesn't really matter what part of the Bible it is, though perhaps I wouldn't like some of the genealogies in the Old Testament. That might be a bit of a struggle to uh, come afresh to those every day. But what go on, what, what we're going to push you here, your one book, what's it going to be? Jonah. Jonah. Every theme in salvation history in 700 words and a classic work of, of Semitic literature. Amazing. Dawn. Well, I'd go for Luke Gospel. Um, I, I feel that it's, it's grounded, it's real life, and it's got a sequel, Acts. It's written by Dr. Luke, the only non-Jewish writer in the New Testament, and he just understands people. Maybe it's the doctor in him. And he gives, um, it seems like he gives a bit more detail about the people and just makes it real for me. So, yeah, it's the Gospel of Luke for me. And hopefully I'll get acts with it. Yeah, I, I thought there was a kind of a, a sneaky appeal to get a buy one, get one free there. But, um, yeah, we'll see. What, what, what about Steve? Yeah, I'd, um, I'd echo Stephen's introduction to his, uh, his answer there in terms of being really hard to choose. But... Uh, at the moment at Houghton, we're going through Ecclesiastes, and uh, and I'm loving it. Um, it's a it's a great book of the Bible because it's I think it's underread from what I'm 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 picking up from people, um, and I think it's misunderstood in a lot of ways by a lot of people. Um, but it is incredibly rich and incredibly honest. It's a book you have to do quite a bit of work on to, like we've been talking about genres and all that kind of stuff, uh, and purpose of writing. Um, but it's very rich um, just in terms of honesty of life and the reality of what it's like to live in a, in a broken world. And then how as a, as a Christian, I can live in that broken world. Um, I'm not sure I could read it endlessly. Um, and I need, I need a bit more, but, but I think at the moment, anyway, that would be my, that would be my choice. Fantastic. Um, well, we've, we've come to the end of our time together. So once again, it's been good to think aloud. Uh, about what everyday faith looks like and it's always our hope that these conversations stimulate hope group conversations uh, conversations in churches and fresh expressions home groups uh, and among friends uh, so here are some questions that you might want to use uh, to help with those further questions uh, in what way do you understand the bible to be the word of god how does scripture shape your christian life and discipleship what tips have you found helpful in your own Bible reading? What questions would you ask of a Bible passage as you read it? Uh, what type of biblical material, uh, yeah, gospels, letters, psalms, historical narratives, do you find easiest to read? What type do you find the most difficult to read? And what advice would you give to a Christian who has never regularly read the Bible on their own before?
Well, it's been great to talk uh, together. Thank you to Dawn, to Stephen and to Steve. Um, Stay safe, be blessed, and we'll catch up with you next week on the podcast. But once again, we're reading it aloud. Thank you.